Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. I've got something special for you today. This episode is a recording from a live event that I did a few months ago, and I think it's going to be really, really useful for you. This recording was from the world's longest speech marathon, which we did at Progressive. We raised over £150,000 for Sue Ryder, and it was a great achievement by everybody. So on with the episode. I hope you enjoy it and you get great value. Well, good evening. Hello. I'm not really sure what to say to, uh, to that little ensemble. <laughs> Ever since I... Oh, we've got a question already. Shall I, shall I take a question? The first yeah. question of the evening. Good evening. What's your name? Lorna. Hi, Lorna. Hello. Morning. Have evening. Have you found your partnership very challenging along the way? <laughs> Have I... <laughs> Have I found our partnership so... I would define, our partnership is defined by extremes. So, yeah, it, it I, okay, all right, some days are, are, are normal. Um, but <laughs> our partnership has been absolutely amazing or, you know, I've really wanted to kill Rob. And in some ways, he, he'd probably say similar about me. So Rob has done some unbelievable stuff. You know, in terms of this business, you know, there's been a whole rake of things which, you know, I come in in the morning and go, oh my God, how did he do that? That is unbelievable. And then there's other times you come in and you say the same thing in the same way, but you don't mean it positively. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and obviously there's a lot less of those than, um, the, than the good ones. So, yeah, that's how, that's how that's been. Whereas if I was on my own, it would have all been more like that because that's just kind of how I am. So I think, you know, having a partnership is an amazing thing. It's the best thing that I've ever had in business. I would no way near be as far or, you know, as have achieved as much if I hadn't got a, a great business partner like Rob. So uh, I'd always recommend people do that, but they've got to be different. They've got to be yin, kind of yang, you know, whatever you're really good at, they don't really want to be good at that. They need to be good at the kind of opposite skill set. We use the different side of the brain. We're just com completely opposite in many, many ways. So, but actually, your vision needs to be similar. That's really important. So you need to really want pretty much the same thing. And that will drive you through all of the difficult times. So, you know, for, for me and, and for Rob, it, we just want this kind of organically growing massively kind of exponentially kind of supersizing business over a long period of time which is really you know I'd, I'd like to do this for the rest of my life so you know we both have a, a great love for asset building building income and just keep on doing it almost for the sake of doing it because it's the growth that excites us so much I know for me you know when I got to a a kind of A, you know, X level or B level or spending kind of 20% of my income or 15% of my income and all the goals I'd set, every time I met one, kind of thought, ah, oh, this must be that euphoric moment. And, um, and it kind of never was. And um, after a period of time, I'd read it many times, you know how you read stuff and you, you, you kind of, 
you read it and you think you understand it, but you don't really understand it until you get there. And so many times, you know, I'd got there, didn't really have that euphoric feeling, and then realised actually the excitement comes just from the growth, and that's actually what I'm addicted to, and I think Rob is as well. So, um, yeah, you can't stop growing. It, and it doesn't have to be monetary growth. It, it can just be learning stuff, can't it? Becoming better at stuff, growing your business. I, I'm just loving flying at the moment. I'm loving going to new places in the helicopter because for so many years I've had to just fly in circles, you can imagine. When you're learning, that's what you do. <laughs> and uh, you just fly around the airport or fly a mile here or two miles there or whatever. So, yeah, I rang the instructor this morning because I've been... I, I'm in my sixth year now, so I've done like I don't know, 160 hours. And I rang in this morning. I said, "Right, I want to go to France." So they're like, "Yeah, no problem." So I'm going to kind of plot my route, and that's my next little adventure. So I find that really exciting. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you about kind of uncommon sense with investing. Okay, so this is taking the contrarian view when you're, you know, investing or you're you're buying assets or you're building a business or whatever it is you're doing in your your business career. This is a theme which I follow quite closely and I think almost above all other kind of strategies and themes within business, I think this is one of the things that you need to focus on. It is an absolute cornerstone of making money, growing businesses and really making them sustainable over the long term. There's loads of people that I know who are in business who make money, they wouldn't necessarily describe it this way, they wouldn't say, oh, it's about being a contrarian, but they kind of subconsciously already know that whatever the masses are doing, they're probably going to be doing something else or moving perhaps in the opposite direction. If a market is going up and it's been going up for a long, long time, what do most people think is going to continue to happen? They're going to they're think that it's going to continue to go up. When things are good, human psychology makes us believe that things can only get better. And when things have been bad for a number of years, human psychology thinks that only, things can only get worse. Um, and that's just a, some sort of genetic thing that we're, we're born with. And you need to kind of force that, that out of yourself and understand these cycles as they move around. I remember in 2009, 2010, you know, when people were really negative about property and I was just loving it. I was filling our boots with the stuff because I was just thinking, this is a really great time. This is a, this is, you know, we're going to see some really good asset growth over the next few years. And the risk, the risk had reduced so much. But ironically, most people didn't believe that because they weren't being told that by the media or whoever. So cycles are really the, one of the fundamental cornerstones of investment that you need to understand. And if we, if we look at this kind of generic example of a cycle, you can see there in the early days you've kind of got optimism, excitement, thrill, and then as the market peaks you get that euphoric moment. So when was that in the, in the last few years? When did, you, when did you kind of go through optimism, excitement, thrill, euphoria? Yeah, so you probably, if you, if you think for the last cycle, you were probably here, probably around, I don't know, 1996, 97, maybe. And then here, maybe you're about year 2000. And then up here, where were you here? 2007, maybe, end off, something like that. When did most people pile into this market in terms of property? Hell of a lot went in in 06 and 07, right here. Why was that? It kept going up. It kept going up. 
but why, why do people why do people think that was a good time? Prices were high, but surely a logical person would say it's better to buy when prices are low. Yeah, so people keep kind of getting into this psychology of, you know, got to buy, going to miss out, you know, there's going to be less kind of next week or next month or next year. That's very true. You get a lot of young people come through who haven't seen the bad times. I mean, we'd had good times for, what, 15 plus years, hadn't we? So there's definitely an element in that. I wasn't conscious in the previous recession. Shortage factor, yeah. So there was a kind of lack of supply. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's your name? Hi, Kaz. Yeah, yeah. Why were people expecting the market to dip in 03? The, yeah. They started to say that again in 05, I remember. Yeah. And by that time, people were thinking, it's never going to, it's not going to collapse. You'd had all these false dawns, hadn't you? You know, a little bit like now with Brexit, this might just turn into another one of those. And what does that do to people's psychology? Each time the, the newspaper starts saying, oh, it's all going to go crash, wallop, you know, market's going to drop 20%, and then it doesn't, what do people think? I remember that. People kind of think, oh, well, the market must be good because, you know, it's been through a testing time. The paper said it wasn't going to be good. Now it is. It must be great. And, you know, they kind of get lulled into this. You kind of know what's going to happen. You just don't know exactly when. So you, you, within about three years, something like that, you should be able to, to work out what's going to happen. Okay? Another question. There was also a lot of lending. A lot of group, yeah, lots of, yeah, lots of credit. That's definitely true of the last boom. Yeah. So, well, actually, it's probably true of most booms. But last time there was huge amounts of credit to homeowners who weren't, I mean, I remember going for mortgages and it was just a joke. You just kind of turned up and the guy just didn't even ask your income and then you got the paperwork through and you were like, what? <laughs> and, the, you know, the, the, um, the buy-to-let mortgages, they, they really didn't care about your income. I mean, it was, it, it, it was definitely a credit-induced kind of boom. And I think a lot of that was because the wholesale markets were providing so much, certainly towards the end of the the last cycle, for sure. Uh, a lot of it was coming from America as well, wasn't it? Until it went wrong. So it went off a cliff, and you've got kind of 08. You, you know, you've, you've got the anxiety here. Did people, they were worried, but do you think they really believed it was a crash? Lots of people, you know, it might have dropped 10%. Ah, well, it will come back. You know, denial, refusing to accept that they're going to fall, or they have fallen. Oh, my house is not worth 20% less. And of course, then there's the fear, the desperation, the panic. And then as people get driven further into that spiral, what happens with the newspapers and the media? They keep pumping it, don't they? More and more and more fear. Because the more fear on, on, on the front page of the Daily Mail creates what? More sales of the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail is often really wrong. Have you, have you noticed this? I, I mean, I do actually read it sometimes, you know, if I needed a bit of light entertainment. But when you read some of their articles, they are, they're just not very accurate. I find this a lot. If you, if you want to get good, kind of solid, economic kind of stories and, 
You want, you want good data and you want stuff that, that's actually balanced and not just twisted. Um, the FT is pretty good. I really like that newspaper. The Financial Times, yeah. The Financial Times is a very good newspaper, yeah. I've been reading it a lot since the 24th of June. I do during all these periods because you, you get to see what's happening, you know, what information is being released, where the market's going and what the likely trajectory is going to be. And it's usually in there first and they're pretty good at analysing it in a, in a kind of even-keeled, um, you know, in a sensible way rather than kind of twisting it. Um, so as we go into this... Um, this kind of, I don't know, where would we be here now? 2009, something like that, 2010. And it comes out of here. We go into kind of relief, optimism, and then it starts growing again. Do lots of people start to buy here? So some do, but actually most people wait till it's way up here again. Up here, don't they? Because they want to make sure that it's really real. They need to hear it for a few years, don't they? They need to read it. They need the seven-time convincer. You know you need seven emails from Progressive before you buy. <laughs> That's, this is basic human psychology. So That's about two days. That's about two days. <laughs> two hours with Rob. <laughs> so, you know, people, people need this kind of convincing over, over a period of time. And that's generally what happens. So, you know, for me, I, uh, my favourite time is, is when there's, not in real terms, but, you know, blood on the streets and, you know, things are really, really depressed. You know, dark days. Everything's, uh, all the wheels are falling off and you just kind of pump the agents full of that, that kind of thought. And even they tend to get a, a little bit negative about the market. So, really, you, you want to become that contrarian within the cycle. You want to be the investor who kind of goes the opposite way from where. If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. Where the, the masses are, because that is where the money is usually made. So this is your normal person. Feel great about this investment. Obviously, as they go down here, temporary setback, I'm a long-term investor. This area here is where, or that area there, somewhere there, is where a lot of people sell. You know it's where they sell because the market falls, doesn't it? With most property investments, actually, your ideal holding period should be 20 plus years anyway, so you know, it shouldn't make too much difference. You just want to get comfortable with the idea that you, you need to be bidding, you need to be active, and need to be building your relationships during these periods here, when you're down here in the despondency and desperation, okay? So we may be coming into a bit, uh, you know, a softer market now. It's certainly soft, softer than it was a month or two ago, and it may get even softer. 
So we're, we're probably coming into a good period. I suspect we're still somewhere over here though. It might be like an 03, 05 moment rather than a, an 08 moment. I, I don't think we're back to 08 or anything like that yet. So commercial property fund redemptions, I mentioned this last night. Loads of people have contacted these big commercial property funds, you know, like kind of Henderson or New Star or one of those big fund managers who owns commercial property and they're trying to get their money out of those investments. Why are they trying to do that? Publicity. Publicity, well, they've been reading the newspapers, but why, why just because we've voted to come out of the European Union have loads of people ask for their money back out of these commercial property funds? Because the media have frightened them, because they're the, these kind of investors, aren't they? They're the ones who kind of sell when it's, it's at the worst point. So they kind of press the sell button, then answer, ask questions later or wait for the answers later on. Yeah? So that's generally what happens during these periods. And it's actually the worst time to sell, isn't it? So for me, whenever I'm going out and I'm looking for a property or I'm looking for, you know, whether it's gold or, you know, wine or whatever it is I'm going to buy, I'm going to hold that thing for 20 years plus. I might not even ever sell it. Uh, my ideal holding period with a lot of stuff is just the rest of my life. So, yes, it's good to get it at the right price. And yes, it's good to time the market, but it won't make that much difference in 20 or 30 years. The biggest difference will be if you've kept it for a long period of time and you've taken income from it and you know, you've got the capital gains from that asset. I like to look at investments a little bit like a, a collection. So, you know, Rob earlier on kind of, he was talking about how he might trick his mind a little bit. He likes spending money and he used to spend money on doodads. So he'd go and buy 20 Victor Victoria suits and he, used to, he, he really did have 30 pairs of Jeffrey Wests. And he had all this stuff. Uh, and these days, he'd kind of invest that in, you know, if he, if he got the urge to go and spend some money, he'd go and buy a watch. Well, I quite like living in that mindset. And investments that I go out and buy, um, for me, I'm, I'm not really looking to trade them or, or sell them. I just see it as like a collection. So it's almost like a collector looking at a beautiful collection of like stamps or cars or wine and you know a little bit like I don't know if you had houses or if you had gold or whatever it's a bit like playing Monopoly isn't it I think if you can get into that mindset of asset building and keeping those assets and maybe leveraging them taking the income from them and getting excited about that and seeing it as your your collection your your little kind of your collection that you're trying to grow over a period of time you, you're going to end up with something really good and you're going to become quite wealthy. So be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. That's a Warren Buffett quote. So who, if, you, if you went through the middle of London and you saw a, one of those big red buses driving along and there was an advertisement on the side of it and it was for a property fund. Let's say it was for a kind of emerging markets Asian property fund or maybe it was for you know, a technology fund or something like that. Is, who, who's seen those kind of adverts on London buses? Okay, so when do most of those kind of adverts appear on those buses? What period? So let's say you'd got an emerging markets advert you know, to invest in shares in China and you know, the Far East in, 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 in manufacturing. Would that come straight after the Asian financial crisis? 
No. Would that be a good time to buy those shares? Yeah. It would be, wouldn't it? Why did the fund managers not put that up straight after the Asian financial crisis? Maybe they can't sell it. So when do they put those adverts up? Yeah. Sorry? When the money pumping into the market? It's usually when they can sell them. How, where, where, when's the best time for them to sell most of them? When, when can they get the highest sales volumes? Yeah, when they've had really good growth. What do those guys have to show you? Or what do they often like showing you? Past performance. Notice the FCA makes them put below it, past performance is no guide to the future or you know, shouldn't be relied on or whatever. It's actually quite true, isn't it? Because what they'll do, they'll pick the best performing fund of the last two years, three years, four years, five years, whatever, and then they'll advertise that and they'll go, look, last year this went up 12% and the year before it went up 15%. Is that the best time to buy that? No, but most the most people will buy it at that point because they'll see that that fund did really well last year, the year before, you know, and, and over five years. Put another fund up, which hasn't done well, you know, and it's, it says, mine, oh, last year we lost 15% and the year before we lost 20%. Are the sales going to be as good on that fund? No. No. Which is the better fund to buy? I know there's a lot of other stuff that goes into this, like the fund manager and what they're buying, but if all that stuff was the same, which fund is more likely better? The, the cheaper one, the one that's made all the losses, because all the money's come out of it, and the assets are maybe closer to fair value. Yeah. So that applies to most asset classes. In fact, you know, it's just a fundamental law of investment. And I've watched this so many times over the years when things become topical, and things, you know, people start talking about them. Usually. After a few years of that, they're no good. You want the stuff that is unloved. You want the stuff that people aren't talking about to buy it just before people do start talking about it. And then when everyone is talking about it and making lots of noise and you know, getting excited about it, that's maybe when you want to sell it. So this is kind of thinking the other way around, isn't it? This is a contrarian investing. Here's another example. I had loads of mates telling me around 2011 how good wine investing was. I heard, you know, probably, well, I probably heard, had three or four different mates telling me that. And I was reading it in loads of magazines and, you know, wine's done really well and isn't Bordeaux brilliant. And I bought a book on it and I, I learned about Margot and I learned about Petrus and Rothschild and all the kind of main chateaus because I thought this would be something really good to invest in. And, you know, you can hold it, it's physical, it's another kind of asset class. But there was another part of my, my mind that thought I should go away and have a look at what the past performance has been up until this point. And sure as eggs are eggs, with, and, and this is what happens with most of these kind of investments, it had had just a really good run up to that point, because that's what creates all the chatter, isn't it? That's what gets everyone excited. Oh, it's been really good, it's gone up. Why did it go up so much? Why, why, why has it gone up from 08 to 2011 so much? People were investing in it, why were they investing in it? Yeah, so they were, probably weren't getting any interest in the bank. What did they feel kind of property was doing? Worried. What did they think the banks were doing? Kaboom. 
like they did in Cyprus and you know a few other places. So lots of people actually took their money out of banks and out of traditional investments because they didn't trust it anymore and bought physical type assets. What else was going on during that period? Who was drinking lots of wine? Or, well, I think they were drinking it. Chinese. The Chinese were drinking loads of wine, or they were buying it and they were mixing it with their Coca-Cola. <laughs> they were. They were buying like <laughs> three, five, 10,000 pound bottles of wine and, and mixing it with Coke in, the, um, in these flashy restaurants in China. And loads of this stuff was getting shipped over there. They still do that. It's a big status thing. And um, so obviously there was, a, there was a hell of a lot of growth. And as China emerged, they bought more and more of that stuff. They probably started with, well, they did start with fashion labels and cars and all that sort of stuff. And then as time goes on, they get kind of more sophisticated, don't they, these markets, as, as the, the, the kind of consumers become more sophisticated. So they moved on to wine, and I'm sure they're still doing that now but not buying quite so much as they were. So the price has come off quite a bit. You'd hear all this chatter, you'd get excited. By the time you'd hear about it from your kind of everyday mates, the market was probably up there, 2011. That's when I was hearing about it a lot. And actually, it's, it's, further than e it's fallen even further since then. So, you know, that was something I was getting quite interested in. I'd have made some pretty big losses if I'd bought then. Oh, by the way, what else was happening here that kept pumping the price up? What else happens in the marketplace with things like this? Oil. What else was happening? What's your name? Paris. People were boozing more. Yeah? What, because they were drowning their sorrows? They might have been, but they wouldn't have been drinking this, would they? Because this is all... <laughs> Like fine vintage Bordeaux. Uh, this is the good stuff, isn't it? <laughs> well, maybe they would have been drinking it, I don't know. Yeah, quantitative easing. So, you know, there was, um, what, what, what does that mean when there's QE, when the Bank of England starts printing money? Yeah, so there may be more inflation. So the value of money may decrease. So people want physical assets. Yeah, could be. What else started happening as well? And this often happens. What's your name? Hi, Bev. Food. Oh, were they? Yeah. Okay. So the kind of top chefs were doing more cookery programs and fine dining and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, maybe. I don't know if they were using this kind of wine. But a lot of what happened was, the, you know these, the chateaus who, that release this stuff? You know the en premier, the, 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 the kind of... You know, you can buy this stuff before it's even harvested or before it's even put in the bottle. They started releasing this wine at much, much higher levels. So what were they doing? They were taking loads of the margin out, weren't they? Because they'd seen so much growth. Because there were so many people coming into the market, they started to take more of the margin for themselves. And that pushed the prices higher and higher. So you can see that. Certainly at the moment, there's lots of markets like this. What's happened with classic cars and actually lots of cars? What's happened to the value of them the last few years? They've rocketed up. Absolutely gone spare, they've gone spare, haven't they? It's a similar thing. And the, the traders and the dealers and the, the, the auction houses are taking more and more out. So there's, 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 there's more of a spread there and probably less for the punters. So it's the same thing. Wines come off a lot and it might be something good to get into 
you know, in the, in the next few years. It's probably still got further to fall though. By the way, the cars, I haven't, I haven't done a little graph on the cars, but it's so weird what's going on. Obviously with the classic cars, you can kind of understand it because there aren't that many of each one about by definition, but it's happening with modern cars now as well. So that Ferrari we've got, I absolutely expected it to drop probably 50 grand in a year. We got offered the same price that we paid a year ago for like a four-year-old car. This, that is just that is weird, isn't it? Never happened in my lifetime, and I suspect it's an indication of a, a market that's going to fall quite, quite strongly in the, last, the next, I don't know, next couple of years. Rob keeps telling me it's going to continue, uh, and that we should buy another one because it will go up. Uh, I've been trying to sell it for a little while, yeah. Um, I've got quite a lot of opposition. <laughs> you know those moments where we're talking, uh, the euphoric ones and the... Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't the euphoric one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, there was a euphoric one about two weeks ago, because Rob's had a few issues since you know, mainly just kind of totting, you know, points, that kind of thing. And um, <laughs> they came for the renewal on the, the, the um, you know, the, the insurance policy, and they quoted him £30,000. Four insurers said no, and one said thirty grand. <laughs> I was just like, I just rolled all around the office. And just like <laughs> yeah, well, that was, a, that was a funny moment. <laughs> okay, so... Gold is another one of these assets, isn't it, which is very, very much linked to how well the economy is doing and how much certainty or uncertainty there is in the market. Gold is a, a very interesting asset class to watch. So gold was pretty much forgotten about, um, not really very well loved. You know, not many people were talking about it pre-credit crunch. In the credit crunch, it went absolutely bonkers. And the value of it, you know, kind of went from what? I mean, it, it, it had got to be probably 600, something like that, around 600 pounds a troy ounce. And it went up over 1,000 pounds a troy ounce. So it increased a hell of a lot. And you see the peak there was, it was kind of maybe 2012, yeah? And then as the uncertainty and, you know, the economy, as the uncertainty is reduced, and as the economy has started to grow again, and people have felt better, gold has come down. Because people have come out of gold, and they've gone back into more traditional asset classes like property and you know, shares and all that sort of stuff. So you always see when markets are going badly, or you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of fear around, the gold price starts doing really, really well. So gold, in the last month, has it, has it started to recover? It has. It's really closely linked with how people feel about them. You know, life and, and you know, where funds are, are putting money, where asset managers are putting money in a, a defensive way. So would gold be a good investment right now? Probably a bit further to fall. There's probably some good, you know, some, some, some good money to come out of it still. And there's probably going to be more rumblings. But, you know, it certainly wouldn't have been a good time to invest when everyone had heard about it being a brilliant thing, which was, as usual, 2010, 2011. You know, that's when I really started hearing about it more and more and more. 
you know, as having had a great run. Yeah, we knew it was going up in 08, 09, but the numbers really started coming out in 10, 11, and it was probably too late then. So what you want to do is have all this stuff on your radar, and as the cycle moves, as we move through the cycle, you need to just be thinking, well, what should I be more into and what should I be more out of, i.e., where's my asset allocation over a period of time? It's very valuable just to have this stuff on, on your radar. It doesn't really change that much. This, this stuff you know, has a, uh, a pretty common pattern through each economic cycle. Here's another one. So prime London residential. What sort of stuff is that? So it might be Belgravia, might be Chelsea, might be Knightsbridge, all those kind of really swank, sorry? Kensington. Yeah, Kensington, yeah. All those swanky type places. So 2010, they were the ones that grew first and grew the most. Why was that? Well, they're the best areas. When you move into a new cycle and it starts and there's growth, the best areas, the best assets, they're always the first ones to react and the, the first ones to grow. By 2012, 2013, what was everybody saying? Brexit. Brexit? Yeah, what, but what was everyone talking about you know, in property? Oh, Kensington's gone up seven times. You know, I'm, I've made millions out of my townhouse in Fulham or, you know, all these people are, are buying around Harrods, you know, in Knightsbridge. And there was massive growth, wasn't there? And of course, that was really an indication of it being a, a pretty bad time to, to purchase that sort of stuff. And where are we now? Well, in, in kind of just May to June, so that's only one to two months worth of change, price change, all of those areas are falling the most. Question? Yeah. Yeah. Neither do I. But they have. Yeah. They probably disproved my point a little bit. Quite, what, what's your name? Sorry? John. John. Hi, John. Don't you think a lot of that is is the Lambert and Hackney? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they've been pushed out. Yeah. That's true, but you know, you'll see as the cycle continues, you obviously get more growth in those more fringe areas, but as you come to the end of the cycle, those fringe areas will back off. You get zero growth, and then when the new cycle starts again, these these ones all, all blow quickest and they'll they'll grow much, much more strongly. It's just you know, the prime areas always react first and, and fastest. And then as the cycle moves out into the Midlands, into, you know, these kind of areas, and then the last part of the cycle, the north of England, they'll react latest. But people assume that those prime areas always outperform and go up more. Is that true? Maybe by 1% or 2% per annum average if you took a 30-year span. What actually happens is they both grow they just grow at different points in the cycle, yeah? So if you've been hearing a lot about, well, you haven't been hearing a lot about central London going up, you've been hearing about it coming down, but actually the areas that are growing, maybe they're not the areas to be jumping into. Again, it's kind of observing the masses and doing the opposite. But isn't that Question. about the 
What's your name? Joan. Hi, Joan. Um, but isn't it also about the um, buy to let? Isn't that also about... The reason why you've got Kensington and the rest of them, they've got contracting. It, it, you don't get that much buy-to-let activity around Kensington and Chelsea. A lot of it is foreigners buying them and then they leave them empty. Yeah. So, yeah, they don't... I, I don't... A lot of them don't get rented out. Yeah. But the stamp duty has increased, is that what you mean? And there's, there's ATED as well. So foreign buyers have got a... There's a new tax called ATED which they have to pay if they don't rent it out, but lots of them still don't rent it out. So yeah, th there has been some effect from, from that, I'm sure. But there's probably more buy-to-let activity in these areas yeah. because the yields are better, aren't they? Yeah, they are. The income is much higher relative to the purchase price of the property. And the stamp duties hit those areas as well. Of course, the stamp duty change has been harsher above 937,000. So all the stuff over a million quid has definitely fallen more and that's the excuse that a lot of the kind of prime central London agents would give. Well, it's all stamp duty. But it's not all stamp duty. It's just that's where we are in the cycle. You know, this stuff reacts first to a changing market. Question, what's your name? Christina. Hi, Christina. Hi, Christina. How, how, what, sorry? Well, it depends how big it is. Three bedrooms, so what, kind of, what, semi-detached, 1,500 square foot? Uh, yeah. Yeah? So if you take 1,500 square foot and you times it by 3,000 pounds, you probably get to the rough value. Can anyone work that out for me? 3,000 times 1,500? Let's have a look. My maths is, yeah, 5 million. There's a lot that's a lot more than that. You know, a lot of stuff would be kind of 10 million, 15 million. There's houses which are 50 million. You know, the, the Boltons, that would be, you know, there's houses down there that are 60, 70, 80 million. Kensington Palace Gardens, there's one there that's 150 million. They're, they're a lot of money, yeah. A one bed flat in Kensington, Chelsea, a small one, little, you know, kind of five, 600 square foot can be about a million pounds, something like that. The oil price. This is another one, isn't it? How's oil done the last few years? Gone down. It's gone down a lot, hasn't it? How do we know that? Everyone seems to know about this, don't they? Oh, because they're being sent home from Norway. Have they? I didn't know that. A bit like Aberdeen. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the oil price has come off a lot. Why is oil reduced so much? Too much production. Why, why, why has there been too much production? Why is there more supply, do we think? Fracking. So the Americans created this new technology. They've always come up with something, the Americans, don't they? God love them. They <laughs> I'm sure the Donald will be uh, teaching them some new stuff shortly. <laughs> What's going to happen with the Donald? I just can't imagine a world with Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's not going to be real though is it it's just like it's like a movie um, so, so yeah the oil price has, has come off a lot there's loads of American fracking going on they created a new technology to extract oil more cheaply from, from certain kind of areas because they were able to do it more economically they were suddenly able to get a lot more oil into the, into the uh, supply so 
Because of that, they're able to supply it quite cheaply, and therefore they pump loads into the market, and lots of the other producers decided not to reduce their kind of production as well. Saudi Arabia kept pumping. So the, the prices come right down. And we're all noticing it at the pumps, aren't we? Question? I think also What's your name again? John. John. Hi, John. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So Iraq could be producing oil again now. Uh, I don't know whether Libya is or not, but yeah, there's probably quite a lot coming out of Iraq now. Whereas, obviously, when they're at war, it doesn't really uh, doesn't really get pumped out, does it? Hi, what's your name? Bill. Hi, Bill. Yeah. 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 So the Saudi Arabians have uh, kind of been quite a lot, quite a big part of this because I, I think they've got one of the biggest oil reserves in the world, if not the biggest. So the prices come right off, and you see there we're probably looking at maybe. I don't know, 25, something like that, $25 a barrel, yeah? And that's pretty cheap, isn't it? If you think of it in relative terms compared to the last decade or the last two decades. So oil is probably de-risked if you were going to put some money into an asset class. I've bought some oil. Um, I just buy it on an exchange. Most of the banks, this isn't necessarily contrarian thinking, is it? Because, you know, what do the banks know? But if you look at all of those people who would make oil price predictions, you can see where their expectation is for oil prices in the future. So it's kind of got quite a nice upward trajectory. All we're hearing about is how oil's fallen, how oil's low. Petrol's still cheap. What are you paying? 113, 114, something like that. Have you noticed diesel and petrol's the same price now? That wasn't, it didn't used to be like that, did it? Why is that? Oh. Everyone bought diesel cars because the government told us to, yeah. Oh, and then once, yeah, once, yeah, they put the price up, but now the, the government have kind of decided that um, they've got particulate, uh, you know, problems, and I think they're going to kind of start going the other way and telling us diesels are bad again. We'll, we'll see. But... Yeah, this is probably another example of a market that is not overblown. There's some opportunity there, and it's something that I'm certainly looking at, and I always keep an eye on, on oil. Thanks for listening. Hope to meet you shortly, and goodbye.